The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, so um, we're starting with a reminder of the aniconic tradition of Buddhist art that was really the only uh, imagery that was done for probably at least two to three hundred years, as far as we know, uh, where the Buddha's um, wishes were respected and not making images of himself. So this is a symbol of the footprint. And it's, I think this one is from Sri Lanka. And you notice the wheel uh, incised in the, in the uh, foot. This is just to review. And this is a wheel Uh, the wheel of the law, the Dharma. And you notice the Indian Yakshi figures underneath. So this would be around the time of Sanchi, which would be around uh, 2 to 300 BCE. Uh, And that merging of the native Indian uh, Yakshi spirit tradition, the yoga tradition into Buddhism was just just happen it was a very natural kind of thing so now when we get to the 20th century um, we get to uh, Gordon Onslow Ford uh, who is a is British originally and came to this country uh, in the 40s early 40s and uh, formed a group of painters on the west coast he lives uh, in um, Inverness and uh, they were the West Coast equivalent of the abstract expressionists in New York and he was very uh, involved in all as- a lot of aspects of the Buddhist tradition and um, before we go on a little further just to give you uh, an idea of where all this comes from um, I did a project in uh, I guess it was between 1986 and 90 called the transparent thread Asian philosophy in recent American art and uh, it was a a book and an exhibition uh, and it took that long to do the research uh, a lot of research and originally I was uh, commissioned to do a book for Cambridge University Press on the influence of Uh, Asian thought on American art from the very beginning of the century and it ended up the transparent thread is uh, cataloged for an exhibition uh, and uh, we collaborated with um, Bard College and and Hofstra University to put on this exhibition and um, do the book and uh, so I in the process interviewed more than a hundred artists Uh, They were older artists like Robert Motherwell, people like John Cage, um, um, a lot of the um, pop artists like uh, Jasper Johns and Robert Rauschenberg. And uh, I had the great opportunity to interview Gordon Onslow Ford, who really is a recluse. He doesn't really go out. a lot and doesn't really give interviews but I had the uh, introduction of a curator from the Los Angeles County of, uh, of uh, Art who 
knew him and he respected him so uh, I was granted the interview and he gave me a lot of information about what was going on in um, even late 30s, 40s uh, in terms of both Europe, the U.S., West Coast, East Coast about how these ideas and practices and conceptions were coming in waves over uh, the artist community and what was exactly happening. Because the interesting thing is that this is really truly a revolution and it probably won't be recognized by the general public uh, may, who knows, maybe another 50, 100 years because the visual language of contemporary art is really telling the story of the Dharma and modern physics because they, um, but the Dharma came first because um, in all ways <laughs> it came first as the first wave on the artist, it came first before modern physics. But um, so that all of the artists I interviewed, uh, without, without exception, all said that this changed what they did, why they did it, and how they did it. Because we were talking about process, that they realized that the whole experience of, of making art and a lot of them then rejected even the word art. Um, Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock are known to have asked friends and relatives, is this really art? You know, what is art? And so it was, it was an experience that could be shared visually. So then you have form, content, narrative, totally different. And the reason that most people are surprised about this is because if you pick up any book on the history of 20th century art, you're not going to see that in there. And um, the reason still mystifies me. <laughs> and, uh, I, in fact, I, have, I hadn't been doing a lot of reading about contemporary art for, for a while this this project was a major time-consuming effort and so I hadn't really been following the latest things that were written on modern art but I'll, re I'll read you in a short while uh, a little snippet from a book called Art Today by Edward Lucy Smith and he's one of the art critics, art historians who are kind of respected and all the gallery owners and the, the museums use this really thick book Art Today and people that he has in there uh, are supposed to be anointed and recognized artists of our time. So uh, to, to start out, the, uh, a lot of the artists that you'll see uh, at either actively practiced, really uh, were very much steeped in uh, the ideas they came, the influence came by various ways. Early on, um, Ananda Kumar Swami, I don't know if anybody heard of him, he's an Indian art historian, 
uh, was read by a lot of the artists and um, D.T. Suzuki, um, earlier um, uh, Fenelosa, who explained a lot about Asian art. And the interesting thing is that some of the artists were very influenced by the forms of Asian art. For instance, Japanese tea house, Japanese painting, flung ink painting, which we're going to have a demonstration of after uh, we talk about this. And um, some were very influenced by the concepts. And the, the major influence for the artists that you'll see now was the Zen, coming from the Zen tradition. And that was uh, kind of first experienced by uh, both the artists in New York and California and then uh, just completely saturated the artist community at, at the time in the late 40s into the 50s uh, through the 60s. So this is an example of Gordon Onslow Ford and in this he's coming out of surrealism and you might recognize something like Miro or and all of these artists also you know if we had five days I, I we could trace it way back to the beginning well um, there's a there's a study this is another one of those new 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 experiences that happened when uh, I was getting together all of this material uh, I found the copy of the transparent thread and a book, the only other book that has ever been written on this subject is not a book, but it's a dissertation by David Clark. And um, it's called The Influence of Oriental Thought on Post-War American Painting and Sculpture. And it's a dissertation he did at the University of London. And I went to track him down in London while I was doing the research, and he had died. I said, well, if I was going to work on this a little while longer, I might not be around either. It's very stressful. So um, I want to give tribute to he did a masterful job because he went back further in the century and into the late 19th century. And he talks about the seeds of Zen Buddhism and uh, Japanese Buddhism in general being the, the literal seeds of Dada and Surrealism in the beginning of the century. And also on a, a personal experience, I can say this now, I was sworn to secrecy while he was still alive, but I had breakfast with John Cage at a conference that we went to, and he said, I, you can't tell anybody about this until, uh, until I'm gone, and that is that Marcel Duchamp had a secret library of Buddhist texts. He had... Zen material, he, and they were, his wife told John Cage, Tini Duchamp, that they were like underlined and dog-eared, and, but he didn't want anybody to know he had it. And so there are a couple of quotes here from um, one uh, historian, uh, Husselbeck. Dada is an American side of Buddhism. It raves because it knows how to be silent. It acts because it is in a state of rest. And then later, um, André Breton says, Tell me, he wrote to Picabia in 1952, was not Dada perhaps the best 
at best a flake of Zen wafted as far as ourselves. So there, there's a lot of uh, information about the fact that this, what one artist, John Baldessari, who's a very intellectual artist in uh, Santa Monica, said about the influence is that it gave the artist permission to be themselves. And it also gave them permission to release all models that they thought they had to do. They essentially, it became, the process became a meditation process. So it is going inside and finding that emptiness. The process of making art became a meditative Right. So these are examples of, um, oh, come on. (laughs) <laughs> Gordon Onslow Ford um, and uh, his work is as he explains it is a ground for experience and he would kind of um, double up on a quote that was made by Robert Rauschenberg in that you can never remember my painting because when you go out of the room and come back, it's different because you're different. Is that, a, I, I mean, I have no idea. Is that a comment on the imposition of perspective on the chaos of the cosmos? Is that, or is that just me? <laughs> that, you know. I mean, that's almost an Well, he, Gordon Onslow Ford would never explain his work. He, you know, he would, he would just say, it is whatever you think it is. (laughs) They do not, they really do not uh, impose any concepts. uh, And that, that is also new in the history of Western art. Um, They also try to go, a lot of them um, refuse to um, sign their works. And they would sign them sometime on the back if they were in a gallery, uh, or the gallery owner sometimes would force them to sign them because they wanted to go beyond ego. Uh, and this, these next set of works are Jackson Pollock. Now Jackson Pollock was taken to hear Krishnamurti speak when he was in 10th grade. And he was very, very taken and um, as he would say, you know, really an earthquake was kind of set off in his consciousness. And so he continued to uh, search and follow and read. And by the time he got to New York, he was already, his worldview had already been considerably altered. And so Artists, art historians that I talk to when I ask them, you know, well, why, why aren't you mentioning this, uh, you know, radical shift in paradigm and shift in worldview in these artists' consciousness and what they're doing? And they said, well, they didn't talk about it. And, of course, all of the artists who were involved, some who had long-standing um, already uh, changes of conception and of worldview and paradigm 
didn't talk about it because it seemed natural to them and it wasn't anything that they would mention and the others who were just being introduced to it as Robert Motherwell said every book you read on Zen say you don't talk about it you do it and then somebody goes on and writes 334 pages about it but their idea was and that's another thing Robert Motherwell said uh, was there was a time in New York in the late 50s where the artists were saying they could pass each other on the street and not say a word and all the words with all the world's wisdom would pass between them so it was that kind of an atmosphere uh, and Jackson Pollock's work when he came to this uh, the style that is loosely sometimes called the drip paintings um, would talk about it as a um, a meditative ground, a ground for uh, literally the void, the 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 emptiness, the 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 potential for the experience of the void. And one, I can't remember which artist said, but it was really interesting talking about the fact of, well, why you know people would say, what is this? Well, you know, what is it? What you know, what is it? And he said. We came to the idea of the void and we realized that if we were going to do anything about it, we had to throw out the objects and just deal with the void. So this was termed anything from an active void, dynamic equilibrium. And a lot of times, as John Cage would say, you talk about the experience of the work in musical terms rhythms and harmonies and repetitions and undulations and uh, so the other aspect of these works which most people again didn't realize is they take time to experience the space so they're again a, an invitation to meditation because if you've ever stood in front of a Jackson Pollock for any time you realize that the 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 oranges come forward, the blacks go back, the greens come forward, the blues pop out. I don't know if you can see all these colors in here, but there's just more and more that reveals itself over time. And the, the whole surface seems to move. I used to tell my students, I taught art history for about 15 years, and I used to tell my students that you know if somebody is really an artist of the 20th century, if they have the conceptions of modern physics, which came later in their interests after they, they looked at the Dharma, when you can't separate form from void, because in the 19th century conception in the West, there was an object in what used to be called negative space. If you read old art history texts, you'll read about negative space. Well, there is no negative space in a Jackson Pollock work, and there is no negative space after the shift in paradigm of the understanding of everything in process and in a state of dynamic equilibrium. So Jackson Pollock looked at work such as these which is a flung ink painting and the flung ink tradition 
was begun in China in about the late 11th, 12th century, and then was done in Japan in the Zen uh, monasteries. And the, we'll have a demonstration at the end where uh, the artist monk would sit for a period of time and first lay out all the tools for the painting and then immediately after coming out of the meditation would grab a brush, put it in the ink, fling the ink against the paper and bring out whatever was in the void. So they, the artists, as you can well imagine, were just absolutely excited about this idea. And this 13th, 14th century, we're doing it before the abstract expressionists. Um, the, the interesting thing is that in the 13th, 14th century, the flung ink and the spontaneous process that was part of the meditation usually, almost always, contained some reference to the natural world. Whereas in, with Jackson Pollock, you have simply the void, but you have the, the Dharma here and the, and the intention is to allow the viewer to experience the space and time and process and to be in the presence of the potential for awakening. And the interesting thing about Pollock, I think I might have skipped one. The interesting thing about Pollock is that if you look at him long enough also, I remember one time I woke up, we were living in Princeton, and we had this window high on the the wall in the bedroom and it was winter and the trees were all all the tree branches were kind of bare and they were all touching each other and it was a pollock because and in fact I have to tell the story about my husband was uh, when I was in uh, uh, studying fine arts at UC Davis um, I was reading a book about pollock and he was doing postdoctoral work in pathology and he said, why are you reading my book? And I said, I'm not reading your book. And he goes, well, that's a picture of dendrites in the brain. I said, no, it isn't. It's Jackson Pollock. After that, he appreciated Jackson Pollock because what he found was natural form by completely, as later we'll talk about Philip Gustin, he says, my work doesn't come from me. It comes through me. And he also said that, you know, when, when you start to paint, everybody is in your studio. Your friends, your relatives, your teachers, and one by one they all leave. And when you're lucky, you do. And that's when the work happens. And that was a very popular uh, statement, too, that a lot of the artists would say. The work happens. Oh. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> that might help. Let's see if I can do that. That won't, it won't work on this. Well, maybe it will. Okay. All right. That, now this is another example of the flung ink and of what the, in the Zen tradition, uh, Liang Kai, uh, 
that wherever the um, it's not as easy to see here where the first fling of the ink happens, but some on some of them it is. But this is what was so fascinating to uh, the abstract expressionists and contemporary artists. The um, that powerful brushstroke. Now this is a work by um, Cy Twombly. Does any is everybody familiar with Cy Twombly? Well, he's the one who's in the uh, art today and who's written about. So across the top here are written is written Om Mani Padme Hum, and then the title of the work is Summa. And this is the description that is written about this in Art Today. Uh, let's see, the version of Pollock's calligraphy. Okay. Cy Twombly often combined with scribbled words, Summa, a fairly late but typical example of the artist's work, bears in addition to its title the syllables of the Buddhist chant, Om Mane Padme Hum suggesting that the artist attaches a mystical meaning to the spirals which fill the main part of the field. Many of Twombly's works are slighter and consist of rhythmic series of very faint scribblings. The evanescence suggests that they are to be interpreted as a new version of Malievich's transcendentalism. <laughs> this, is, this is what is in the the text. I mean, how obvious can you be Om Mani <laughs> There's a, a couple of artists that, uh, one, the pop artists are the ones who were very involved in, in Zen and in the practice of the Dharma. And of course, no one got what they were about because they were, they were all visual koans. And th there was one time when, um, Rosenquist uh, came back from a three-month course at the Naropa Institute, which at that time was called the Jack Kerouac Institute for Disembodied Poets. And uh, he he was he had sat he was you know reading a lot, studying Buddhist texts, and he came back and he did this big back end of a Cadillac in you know those Cadillac cars that had the round lights and the fins and. And his whole idea was emptiness and the whole kind of nondescript, non-meaning. And all the critics wrote about it as a criticism of American culture and all this kind of stuff. He goes, I give up. <laughs> just. But this is still, obviously, it's still going on because this was just published. But um, this kind of... Uh, material is what Cy Twombly, who has even written about his inspiration, his intention with the Dharma, his idea of the the basic gesture, the 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 kind of root energy, the the um, the natural uh, mark of of the artist. Uh, this particular work is. Um, by Hakuin, uh, 1685, and it is the calligraphy that says Namu Amida Butsu, the, the um, mantra of the, uh, the um, 
Zen tradition and the Amida Buddhism tradition. So this idea coming from making marks, not using the essentially the Arabic letters to spell out, although Sai Twombly did in, those, in, in that particular work, but the idea of the repetition, the repetition, the, the um, process of establishing space at a place where emptiness could be, um, could be found. And this is Franz Klein. Now, Franz Klein talked about how his work was different because a lot of his work looks like calligraphy. This particular one has, has more um, dimension and has another shade, but uh, a lot of his work is just gestural brushwork in black and white. And he said he realized that the Asian calligraphers start when they're five years old. And so they know exactly where to put the mark on the paper when they start intuitively. But what he did was he'd lay out a huge piece of canvas on the floor and he'd brush and paint and gesture until he left. (laughs) Then he'd stop and look at it and cut it away. So he cut it down until the balance and tension and energy and proportions were what to him was saying what he wanted to say. And this is Philip Guston. This is, a, I think, one of the, a really good example of um, what he was trying to do. And that is, if the longer you look at it, the more you see the playing with form, void, form, void. Which is form, which is void? That reminds me of William Wiley has a, a line in one of his works, and he says, form, void, form, void, void, form, void, form. But when all is said and done, Norm is really Lloyd. <laughs> So this, uh, Gustin's um, work, and besides the quotes um, that I um, told you about, that, that I knew about, I found a couple of others in um, David Clark's work. He says... Um, This is a period uh, in which the ego is transcended, in which direct seeing is brought about. Uh, And this is David Clark. And Gustin then also talks about it as one in which the forms become known. The knowing is an experiential learning about the form in the process of developing it on canvas and is the means whereby the preconceived ideas about its placement are left behind. Then Gustin writes, what, where do you put a form? It will move all around, bellow out and shrink, and sometimes it winds up where it was in the first place. But at the end, it feels different, and it had to make that voyage. And then later on, he says, In my way of working, I work to eliminate the distance or the time between my thinking and doing. And so Gustin also practiced. He meditated. He studied Zen. He 
was in the company of his their sangha, John Cage, Jackson Pollock, Merce Cunningham, Robert Motherwell, Franz Klein, Adolf Gottlieb, Barnett Newman, and on the West Coast, the, the group around Gordon Onslow Fort. So um, this kind of form void idea uh, is all a part of the experience of the artist and the intention to share and communicate. Robert Motherwell um, actually taught a class in Zen at UCLA in uh, the late 1940s. And uh, it was funny because uh, the artist used to tease him because he had quite a big ego. And they said that he had a long way to go. <laughs> and this is a flung ink painting, an example of a flung ink painting in this, this type of thing, which Motherwell told me that um, they're they were just very, very taken by. And you can see probably the, uh, the first drop of ink happened right about there. Sometimes you can see where it is and sometimes you don't. And this work is by Mark Toby. Nin this is in 1953. Now, Mark Toby also was very, very much involved in uh, the Zen tradition, and his uh, paintings are grounds, as he calls them, grounds for emptiness. The uh, presence, the experience, and he also here, because this particular work is casing on masonite, and it's called window. Most of the time, artists will leave their work untitled. But every once in a while, they'll, they'll come up with something that is a little bit of a suggestion in addition to the work. And he is also very, he always, from the early time, he was very influenced and interested in the Japanese uh, aesthetic and tradition of the natural wood, the, the natural qualities of uh, the objects. So he is using wood here to um, kind of set the the tone for the work. Is anybody familiar with Mark Toby's work? There, um, the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art has a couple that are really stunning. They're, um, when you get a chance to see one, it, it's definitely worth spending some time with. And speaking of time, this influence that has gone on, um, we went to the Venice Biennale this year, the art exhibition that happens in Venice every two years. And uh, each country has a pavilion, and then they have a great big building for countries that are new or didn't, couldn't afford one a hundred and some years ago. And it was interesting because the Swiss pavilion, when you went in, it said, this will take 42 minutes to see. And so the artists are challenging the, the viewers these days. This is Mark Toby. The scale of his work. 
this this particular one let me check on the size it's uh, 44 by 28 inches uh, he, he did not do as large works for instance as Jackson Pollock or Robert Motherwell who did feet <laughs> rather than inches just you know very large large works uh, his works are takes not only time to deal with but also time to do because they're very many many small brush strokes that are piled one on top of the other and the process again is was a part of and that's another thing that was repeated again and again to me during the interviews with a lot of artists is that there is no product there's only process and so that was a, a major change uh, in the way people thought about what they were doing and why they were doing it. And again, here's Mark Rothko. Uh, I found a letter in my research that Mark Rothko, Adolf Gottlieb, Barnett Newman, and Franz Klein wrote to the New York Times in 1948 because their work at that time was being described as an American revolution against European art, that it was all political, and that the reason that they were doing this was to establish an original American identity. And they said that couldn't be further from the truth. They, were all, they could care less about politics. They were apolitical. They were after giving people an opportunity for a spiritual awakening and they and mark rothko said in the letter i don't know why no one has ever asked me to do a chapel <laughs> and he ended up doing a chapel at, at the end of his life but um they after a while they just gave up trying to fight critics because the critics kept on that line that this is and then they they came into the idea that well you know if anybody talks about you whatever they say it doesn't matter it gives you publicity so they um they really didn't didn't uh fight it after that and this is another rothko again if you look at this and you think in terms of form and void and the dynamic equilibrium, the tension, that the white comes forward, it goes back. Is it yellow on white? Is it white on yellow? Uh, and it, it is a ground for um, meditation. And this one is uh, Ad Reinhardt. Is, are, is anybody familiar with Ad Reinhardt? Uh, his probably best known painting in New York is in the... Whitney or the Museum of Modern Art it's called black on black and it's the the squares he did that later than this I don't have the date written down for this one but uh, Ad Reinhardt was a practicing Buddhist he uh, looked for in his work and and you can see this the other thing is if you look long enough now there are people who copied these works who tried to imitate them who you know, they, they were popular. They were selling in the late 50s, 60s, and 70s. So, but if you really look, you can tell. Uh, if you look at this, see this stroke right here? You see where the arrow is. Um, and you see the blue behind it. All of the strokes live kind of 
independently yet integrated with the others. There's, there's this, this tension, this energy that goes back and forth between the marks and the strokes. When you have someone who really doesn't understand the, the dynamic equilibrium, the, the, the active void, as they talked about it, it looks absolutely flat. If you look at it and really feel, I remember I was, I was asked to do some uh, art criticism for an art newspaper in Trenton, New Jersey, when we were living in Princeton. And I went to this place and looked at the work that I was supposed to write about. And I almost felt like I was being strangled. I couldn't breathe because these works were huge and they were of this quality. But there was no space to breathe. There was no dynamic. There was no tension. It was just a bunch of marks on a canvas. And you, when, when you become familiar with the visual language, you can feel it. And it, it was a really interesting experience. I've never had one before or since, but uh, it definitely was um, a, a, a factor. don't know if you're getting to this. Where does Clifford still fall in all this? Clifford, oh, he, he is definitely in the group. I mean, one of, one of the group. I was going to include his work, but we... <laughs> yes, again, if you, you know, I was paying attention last time we were at the Museum of Modern Art in San Francisco about the form and the void and the... Uh, the other thing I used to tell my students about this, this kind of consciousness that is obvious is that in the, the kind of Dharma or modern physics consciousness, a line happens when two forms come together. So when there is a line, it shouldn't be dividing something that seems unimportant and negative space and then something that is important. So it's, it's this kind of mutual relationship and when the two come together is when a line happens. The older way of thinking about it, the, the um, kind of Newtonian way of thinking about it would be, you know, you outline something that is the form and the rest of it is just space around it. Actually, Leonardo was, I mean, when you, when you look at Leonardo, he was, he was awake. <laughs> Because if you look at the edges of all of his images, you can see that kind of electrical tension that um, there's no negative space in Leonardo's work. Um, could I ask a question about Ad Reinhardt's process? Um, since you were talking about it all being process and not product, and he was a practicing Buddhist, I'm, I'm curious about black on black because I spent a lot of time looking at black on black. Um, was that done entirely with brush, brushwork? I, I didn't look at the surface. Yeah, closely. yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I can't tell you how many times I took students in there to look at black and black and go, what? Now, um, I've divided this material into um, this contemporary art and the Dharma, the early influence on, on painting, and then ceramics. 
And the last part um, is the um, Zen koan and uh, meditation and humor. So the ceramics also uh, had a big, huge impact on uh, American artists. And we just have to think back, not too long, when you would look at a work like this, maybe grandmothers or aunts or uncles would look at it and say, what is that? You know, it should be thrown away. You know, that's that. And yet, you know, this is a Japanese national treasure, a, a, a teapot, a tea bowl. And uh, this is 16th century. And this is what was... <laughs> The aesthetic before the uh, Japanese aesthetic of the, the wabi-sabi, the whole tea aesthetic of natural forms and the appreciation of natural forms came into the consciousness of our culture. And that began, uh, it's interesting how wars, you know, the, the whole process of travel and exchange of culture and things happened uh, sometimes during and after wars. Well, after World War II and after World War I, actually Dada sprung up after World War I where this group of artists got around and said, okay, enough of this culture. Look what it got us. Let's look somewhere else. And that's when they started exploring uh, a lot of other spiritual traditions. So this really was the before the 19 mid 40s this was our idea of what ceramics were and anything else in fact I had the great fortune of being a student of Robert Arneson at UC Davis in ceramics and he used to tell stories about uh, you know doing his funk art ceramics uh, and he was truly a Zen master I mean the first day of class he threw in Zen and the art of archery copies at everybody and he said just substitute pottery for archery and you'll know how to do it. <laughs> and he was there when John Cage was at Davis and uh, he used to do these spontaneous kind of assignments where he put in a telephone book. He said, open the book, the first page you find, find a, something and make it. <laughs> like plumbing tools or something like that. And this came about, he would repeat that, that statement. One thing is no more important than another as a means to enlightenment. And when you think about that and that in the consciousness of people, and then you think of Marcel Duchamp's toilet seat, <laughs> it makes more sense than it does as a political commentary or, or, or some type of rebellion. But back to the other aesthetic, another um, uh, tea bowl. Oh, I did not write the... This is 16th century, and it is uh, another Japanese treasure, national treasure, absolutely priceless. And the, the thing to uh, which I wanted to make the point about the process in the tea ceremony, how every little part counts, is that on the inside part of this tea bowl, this behind this area, would be some type of design. And when the tea master is um, serving the tea to the participant, the person 
sees the, the design. The master sees nothing, the, the emptiness on the side. So, and then it's turned. Later on, it's turned. So the whole idea of form and void and the, the uh, exchange of, of uh, aesthetic. And this is Peter Volkus. Peter Volkus, 1981, uh, was very influenced by um, the Japanese tradition and was, in, in fact, one of Robert Arneson's um, tactics in his Zen master teaching was he would have all the naive students come in and we had kick wheels in the class, none of this electric stuff. And he said, okay, before you can pass this class, you have to throw a perfect pot and a perfect plate. So everybody's working away and he's going up and down. Being, he, had a, he had a stick actually and he had a measuring tape and he'd measure, say stop, you know, he stopped the wheel, he'd measure, you know, all different parts of it okay you know okay then you had your perfect plate he would ask everyone else to leave the room and then he'd say take it off the wheel throw it on the floor <laughs> step on it you know tear it and this this kind of tearing of and it was amazing the transformation that happened the respect that you had for the material and the the change of because all of a sudden your ego was gone. You know, you didn't throw that perfect plate. It became something else on its own. And it kind of revealed a lot. And then he goes, now you can fire it, but you can't tell anybody else <laughs> what happened. And in those days, you know, that was 1967, people didn't tell anyone else. And I mean, it was, I guess it was a different world. We didn't put it on the Internet. <laughs> guess what happened? But... Um, that happened to everybody. Um, so this um, Peter Volkus's work um, is comes directly out of that respect for uh, the material. And this is I'm going to try to enlarge part of it. This is Bob Arneson's work, and it's called Sinking Brick. And it uh, Sinking Brick. Let's see if we can. <laughs> you start out here. Hmm. Oh. You see down at the bottom, there's nothing. <laughs> so it sinks, basically, and turns into a spiral. But that is the beginning, really, of... Um, the uh, the humor, the beginning of the humor. That was 1969, the, the Sinking Brick series. Now this section is called the Mandala and the Zen Circle, and the how it influenced the um, the artist. This is a, a very traditional Tibetan mandala, and uh, if anybody has read about Carl Jung and his use of mandalas and his interest in mandalas, um, that was a, a kind of gathering place for a lot of artists to, talking about Jung's work and about his use of mandalas and about the whole idea of uh, cosmic diagrams and the whole idea of the process of... There was also... Uh, by the time you got to the 70s, I forgot who said it, the map is not the territory. 
that yeah that was a, a very popular uh, idea that was wedded to their understanding of the Dharma and, and Buddhism in general, especially Zen. Um, the idea that what they were making, the remnants, or they used to say residue of the process, was not what it was all about. It, you know, it was the process. And so you had, um, and the other thing that was um, very important was the koan. So this one, a monk asked his master to express Zen on paper so that he would have something tangible to study. At first, the master refused, saying, since it is right in front of your face, why should I try to capture it with brush and ink? Still, the monk continued to plead with the master for something concrete. The master drew a circle on a piece of paper and added this inscription. Thinking about this and understanding it is second best. Not thinking about it and understanding it is third best. The master did not say what is first best. And that's, that's why you see so many of, of the Zen circles with uh, various poetry. And given what has come before, you can understand how this, the whole brush process and the, the whole dynamics and the idea of process was very attractive to the artists. This is a work by um, Bruce Connor in 1966. Uh, and this is another artist who has been described as, you know, a, a funk artist who was, you know, after rebellion and, uh, and even, I mean, even the beats. If you look at the Dictionary of Literary Biography, there are 52 poets, writers, who are listed as beats in the beat volumes. 46 of them, when they're asked what their spiritual practice is, call themselves Buddhist. And yet, when Gary Snyder won the Pulitzer Prize, he said in New York, the New York Times did a review of his book and they called him a California minimalist. <laughs> they just don't know what to do with it. It's so fascinating. But um, Bruce Connor um, was part of the funk art tradition, and this this particular work is um, there's felt tip pen drawing mounted on a kakemono scroll, so that the drawing on the inside is done with the felt tip pen, and it's on like a, a rice paper, which is then mounted on a, a traditional scroll. Uh, and his, he calls it mandala. Now the, um, I always get this confused, so I have to check for sure. Uh, yes, Barnett Newman. He also was part of that group that said, you know, why doesn't anybody ask me to do a chapel? Um, the, these works are, done totally spontaneously and when the circle came out he kind of recognized it and kind of he, his dialogue would be that everything else around it uh, is supporting the the insight so that the insight is the 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 circle and his his memory and his experience of the um, of the Zen koan 
And this is Adolf Gottlieb. Um, this one I do have the measurements for. It was 1946 and 38 by 30, and it's an oil painting. And here, this is really interesting now. Does I don't know how it comes across um, on the if it does it as well as on my screen, but. Um, the circle, doesn't the white in this seem to go back a little? Now that, see, it's 1946, and it's really interesting because probably had he done the same painting just a little bit later, that wouldn't happen. It would all be kind of in a, it, it wouldn't be in separate space because if you go back to the circle, see what, that doesn't go back. It doesn't look like a light coming through. It, they're both, they all exist on the two-dimensional surface. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. That, you know, that's, what, that's the freedom of... Actually, you know, John Cage and uh, uh, Robert Rauschenberg did a long scroll uh, with inking a tire and putting it on Madison Avenue and running your car down. And it, it's in, it's in the, um, the uh, National Gallery of Art in the contemporary section. They have it mounted on the wall. It's in a plexi box, part of the scroll. I mean, it's like, it probably is about uh, 50 feet long, but they only have maybe 10 feet of it unrolled. But it's like a Chinese scroll. And you look at it, and you know, like if this were if this were flat, like run out like a tire, you see like landscapes in it. You see all of these forms. It's really, really incredible. And this is Jasper Johns. And again, the the resonance of that uh, statement: one thing is no more important than any other as a means to enlightenment. So uh, this is on, on metal, and this is a, a kind of a resin construction, so it's actually three-dimensional. But the, if you know Jasper John's work, the quality of the materials that he uses just has a, it really has some kind of mystical power about it and when you look at it for a long time. He also uses um, wax, uh, the... Uh, what is the wax encaustic um, process that has that dimension and that, that kind of vibrating quality? Let's see how we're doing for time. <laughs>